Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm Stuart Garlick. In this episode, we are looking back at the London E Prix. We're looking forward at the Seoul E Prix, and um, there will be contributions from friend of the pod Hazel Southwell for the first time in a few years, and also Toby Bloom, the journalist for eformel.de. Uh, the first bit you'll hear is Hazel's contribution from London, and then after that, we will hear from Toby. And remember that you can follow us on motione.org for uh, latest news. You can follow the podcast and rate it if you so wish, and our Twitter is motione.org. So, here we go. Lucas Degrassi. The, the problem as he sees it is that decisions are being made based on video footage, based on subjective analysis, rather mm. than using the data available. Would, would you say there's, uh, there's, there's a reason for him to be angry about that? Um, I don't think so. I, I think, to be honest, um, when it comes to obstruction, it's fairly cut and dried, and it's, if, are you clearly in the way of another car? Um, that is a visual thing, and it can be visually judged. I don't believe that data would show anything different other than impeding um, it's one of one of the things that that's currently a theme in Formula E and, and why the drivers are getting sort of aggro is actually something that the drivers have been getting aggro about for ages which is that they feel that the driving standards in Formula E have not been enforced to a high enough degree for a world championship um, some of that relates to the way that drivers battle on track uh, some of that relates to things like moving under braking, which you're now seeing five-second penalties issued for. Mm-hmm. Seen at least one, likely to be two. Um, I don't know if it's come in yet. Um, uh, from this race alone, and the, and things like the impeding issue. In the past, there has been a tendency to sort of go like, well, the cars are quite difficult to control, and it's a street circuit, and been... Not exactly leeway, but some of the things that you might have been really clobbered for in Formula One, in terms of, for instance, impeding another driver during a qualifying session, have just been kind of, well, there's too many cars and they get in each other's way. Mm. Um, If you remember in Monaco in season seven, Mm -hmm. uh, Mercedes uh, were playing very silly games with Jaguar and sort of like trying to back them up. And and there's also been um, some instances where drivers even clonk each other in qualifying sessions because the driver ahead is going so slowly to try and like build up exactly the right gap and stuff. And that, that I think it's completely right that impeding is cracked down on and and that things like moving under braking are cracked down on. And it, it, yeah, it's something that the drivers themselves have asked for. So when they then get frustrated by the rules then being actually applied, um, yeah, I'm sure if Lucas had been Mitch, he would have been absolutely incandescent. Hmm. incandescent because if his quality lap had been ruined by someone else in the way, he, he wouldn't have taken that well at all. Um, Especially not if he was in Mitch's position where he is, you know, fighting for, to remain in a title fight. So, um, yeah, I'd, I think it's one of those things where whichever driver gets penalised for it. And, and the, the thing is, he probably wasn't doing it intentionally. It's kind of a track position thing. Some of it's the team. But, I mean, that tends to be the case in any series where somebody's caught impeding on a poly lap. There's not a lot of room on circuits, 
uh, they probably just didn't get the right information from their team. We know that there's, you know, some major radio black spots around, particularly the Excel, um, and also that the GPS information around the Excel is is actually quite poor. People don't always know when there's another driver. If you if you watch the um, the kind of track map of where drivers are, which mm-hmm. is basically the same information that, that teams have, um, then they actually just disappear for large chunks of the, the track, for that, instance. That was actually something he said. He said, we have no GPS. Yeah, yeah. So, so it is difficult, and I do understand why he would feel that it was not something he could have avoided, um, but I don't believe that his braking data, for instance, would have... Like there's no there's no telemetry that's gonna help explain why your car was in front of someone else's car. Right. Um, another thing he was maybe upset about prior mm. to the race was the change to the circuit, which meant it was um, pretty difficult to overtake. Obviously, Nick Cassidy showed it's not impossible, but mm. uh, as did Seti Camera, but. It's, it's incredibly difficult and that leads you into some low percentage dive bombs if you really want to get through. Um, how satisfied were you with the changes to the circuit and um, did you prefer last year the carnage notwithstanding? Um, uh, I actually, so I was surprised how good the racing was, um, especially, you know, as you mentioned, Cassidy and Evans were both able to make like very substantial gains. Um, I, I was, I will be honest, the drivers were so nihilistic about like the chance <laughs> of anything happening but a parade uh, yesterday in the press conference that they'd obviously just had their briefing and they were just bleak. Do you think maybe they um, just had a chat with each other and decided we're going to go for this and, and make sure people know that we're upset? Um, no, I don't think so. I, th- I think they just, the drivers also, so... Last year, the double hairpin was put in specifically to increase the chance of overtaking on the basis of a consultation with the driver committee who consult on tracks, um, which is something that's existed since season five, um, so for the whole of Gen 2, and the drivers are very passionate about the idea, and it's completely understandable that they need to be heard and they need to be listened to about the circuits. Um, a lot of the things that they've raised are things that are safety issues, uh, things like removing... Uh, a few years ago, there was a big spate of uh, the use of false chicanes to slow down areas of, of Formula E circuits. The drivers said they were dangerous. They were right, to be honest. They, they frequently caused wrecks. Um, and there were things like the start at Burn, where it was just impossible that there was going to be anything other than a red flag, pretty much. So... Yeah, it's very, it's very, very important to them that they're listened to and when they feel that things the drivers suggested are overturned without them being consulted, they get honestly very, and I think completely understandably, um, because at the end of the day it's them risking themselves and, and their cars and their careers out there. Um, yeah, they get very agitated, they get, they get quite emotional and and kind of discouraged that they're not being listened to and you hear the same thing from drivers in every series it's you know the the f1 drivers clearly have have come to blows with the series quite a lot this this year for instance um my so on that side I, i don't think it's a great improvement um i think definitely it could have been managed better with the drivers 
um, in terms of just making sure that they felt they were involved and, and that there wasn't that friction there. Um, I also think potentially there just needs to be a bit of a reset on the way that this circuit works mm. um, and to we should not be as Formula E a series that has always been known for exciting races, always been known for good overtaking coming to places where we say this is going to have no overtakes mm-hmm. right. and also probably not coming to tracks where we have to take six kilowatt hours of energy away and and I know that's that's a function of the format so if the races ran to distance it would be different because you just add more laps um, because it's a short track and it's a low energy track um, so yeah the 45 minutes plus one lap format will will sort of lend itself to that um, because it's inflexible in that respect but the yeah I think I think for something that's such a prominent event and we've had so many people here today and it's a really good opportunity for Formula E to genuinely be in a city centre genuinely be somewhere where people are very excited about it it's just a lost opportunity to have a track that's one of the NAFA ones in, mm-hmm. in that respect. So, um, and especially because it has some very cool elements. So like I actually think the indoors bit is really cool. Um, if we do end up with a wet dry session like Quali was last year, um, then that gets really wild. Um, and and to have to to be able to put a racetrack, you know, in this location is very good but I, I think especially with the higher power in Gen 3 for instance it's really not going to work like 350 you are never even when drivers are in 250 kilowatt mode they're mm. hitting that for that very top end because obviously that's the maximum is increased um, you know they're using it for a tiny tiny percentage of the lap um, and 350 you're just not going to get anywhere near so um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's important that. So I'm glad that we actually had decent racing this year, and I think it's important that just going forwards there is a sort of sensitivity to the way that we treat this circuit and and to make choices that do make mm. it better. I appreciate that there are lots of constraints, um, but I, I do think there has to be things that can be done better. For instance, that area um, where there's a lot of the outdoor grandstands mm-hmm. where I mean they've just picked an arbitrary layout there to some extent it's a car park yeah like there's a, there's absolutely no reason why that has to be the shape it is particularly I mean I think they've picked out camera angles uh, specifically the straight where the DLR is above it that kind of thing yeah yeah but but in terms of the configuration of, yeah. of like yeah you, you could definitely you could change that so that there were were corners with more overtaking opportunities. Um, more worryingly this year, and the drivers did talk about this in the, the press conference a little bit, and some of them were talking about it in the pen, I don't know why it took so long to remove debris from the track, and that, I think, is is a significant concern. Yeah. Um, I'll put a pin in that because I want to mm. ask you about it, but uh, I, I think the London XL circuit in some ways is a, solu- is a solution to a problem they were having, which is Alejandro Agag wanted at that time a race in London. Mm. Um, London is one of the places where it's most difficult to actually do any planning at all, and the, yeah. uh, the only place they could have had it was the XL, 
and you know that they kind of worked the whole oh we want indoor racing thing it was it was a solution to a problem really wasn't it and yeah. and uh, and the gen 3 cars are going to be even more powerful and fast mm. and uh, you know are we going to need to look at moving somewhere else in the uk do you think uh no i don't think so i i i think they are completely there are completely valid things that you could do around this area so i used to live near here so i know quite well and um yeah there's there's lots of roads and and bits that could be used here there's been an aversion to closing nearby roads um some of which makes complete sense because they're for instance bus routes um but i think yeah i think i think probably obviously last year's event was quite a compromised event 2020 didn't happen at all um and this year now fans have been let in and there's there's been kind of like a proper version of it run i hope that that will sort of make the case better within the local area in terms of applying for permissions and saying like look we do actually need a bit more space we need to be able to use this bit we can prove that we didn't destroy the concrete and wherever and, and you know to to just to just be a bit bolder because if you're going to run a race in london then you should you should make it a showcase not mm. an event that maybe just doesn't doesn't hold up um carbon fiber all over the racetrack and it yeah. and, and it stayed there and the yeah. drivers did talk about it you asked a question in the press conference um in formula one there would have been an immediate safety car for that you know if if a car parks a mile away there's a safety car in formula yeah. one what um obviously formula e street circuits you need to treat a bit differently but it seems like there's a real aversion at the moment and i wonder if there's been a directive from above somehow for the race director to ever bring out the safety car for anything right now um, there is somewhat so there's there's been a kind of uh, uh, there's been a desire to limit the amount of time spent under caution because in a 45 minute race if you are getting extreme situations like uh, Valencia last year when 19 minutes were under some sort of safety car or of course yellow or whatever then it like yeah that's that's not a great product in mm. terms of racing um so when it is things like bits of carbon fiber and they might essentially clear themselves up by someone collecting them in their front wing or their tire or whatever then um i mean i i also think it was probably where they were which was not places it was ideal for a marshal to run onto the course and, and collect um so that's probably just something that needs to be looked at in terms of retrieval. Whether that problem will persist into Gen 3 as well is meh. Um, <laughs> you know, the Gen 3 car is a lot less robust, which might mean it shatters more. Um, it also might mean it shatters car other cars less. So, um, yeah, this is, we're probably now into the final three races of this as a problem. Mm. Um, I do think it was a problem, and I do think, you know, for instance, if, if, uh, if you were... Mitchell, if say Mitchell Stoffel, who are, are realistically now the people fighting for the title, and Stoffel has a substantial lead, um, and you ran over something and got a puncture, especially in a series where you're very limited on tyres, um, you know they only get three sets for the the um, double header weekend, um, then yeah you're going to be so pissed off because it's not just going to affect that race it's not just going to be that you have to pit it's going to be that it has a knock-on effect tomorrow and you know like the 
so yeah, I think I think the drivers are right to be frustrated by it. I I don't know what I mean. Personally, I think that a zonal yellow in order to allow marshals to be able to get out and pick that up or or something to happen about it um, that would be the ideal thing and, and f- also for Formula E although they are street circuits yes 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 there are ways of doing better access around street circuits and, and to m- make sure that you know if you know you're a series that has a regular habit of spraying carbon fibre all over the shop mm. then like having that built into to the way that you're thinking about running events um, and stationing marshalling posts where marshals can easily and quickly get on the track as well. Yes, yeah. All right, Toby Bloom, uh, London E-Prix. Uh, it, was, it was an event. It was a weekend, wasn't it? It was quite the weekend. Thank you for, for inviting me once again. I love these, these little podcasts after the races, especially now that we're getting close or are right in the middle of the final stretch of the season just 10 days to go by the time we're we're recording this it's an exciting time to be a fan of formula e isn't it it's it's quite a time to be alive yeah absolutely and uh, <laughs> um i i want i want to start with antonio fields to costa because he clearly feels the same way uh he said after the uh, london e prix hey fia formula e and xl london best formula e event of our history it felt like nba meets motorsports more of this please so i i was i was so enthused to see a driver in formula e praising formula e because it's happened so little in recent years um i i think it's worth commenting on because you know, in my articles and on this podcast, I spend so many uh, 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 man hours picking holes in Formula E's marketing plan. It's it's nice to know part of it's working. Uh, uh, based on what you saw of the London E-Prix, I know you weren't able to be there, but uh, did you agree with him, Toby? I think I do. Just watching on, on telly, it felt like a really, really good event. Of course, I saw a couple of tweets about the security not being organized as well as it could have or the wall where fans were able to pick out the little flags to take with them Hmm. on the grandstands that wasn't too well organized apparently but these are just minor things apart from that the in general the event seemed really well thought through there were a couple of celebrities ej jacks jones did a gig before right before Mm -hmm. the race uh, we had an announcer similar to boxing uh, announcing the drivers on the grid, at least in the top five. Yeah, so and th- there is there like is a, a visceral thr- there is a visceral thrill, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. To hearing hearing a name as English as Jake Dennis being said being said <laughs> being said in a let's get get ready to rumble voice. <laughs> yes, that was. If I heard that on TV as well, I thought that's mm, not. I, I'm lucky Jake Dennis is a racing driver, not an MMA fighter or a boxer <laughs> or whatever. Um, I think Jake Dennis feels fair, lucky that he isn't as well. <laughs> yeah, although, to be fair, I think he'd do well in boxing. I think Jake Dennis... I think Sam Bird is the one you least like as your opponent in boxing because he would knock the hell out of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jake Dennis, I think he'd do well in, in man-to-man fighting. 
you, you know, I, I once had ambitions to make this an electric vehicle tech discussion um, and to <laughs> to not not get into the broader sort of dichotomy of fans and stands. But you're absolutely right. Jake, Den- Jake Dennis, I've got to say, has the jawbone structure of a fine MMA fighter and um, um, and also, frankly, um, looks weathered in a nice way. I I, th- I think that he could probably step it step step quite well into U- UFC six hundred and seventy nine or whatever it is. I think he could. And then Lucas Degrassi, another one I really not, like not to be my opponent in in fighting. I think Sam Bird, Lucas Degrassi, and Jake Dennis are the ones who would definitely win against me. And to be fair, I think anyone in FE would win against me. I'm not the most athletic person, to be honest. Well, L- Lucas Degrassi would be the one who um, who tweeted after the event that there was that there was no rule against stepping outside the ring to grab a chair. <laughs> <laughs> so he did, yeah, yeah. Fair uh, point, actually. And 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 then and then uh, in media pen after the fight, he would say, "It is totally unfair. Look at the rules." <laughs> yeah i think i think you're right now anyway uh, back to to london and back to formula yeah i enjoyed myself as a fan watching on on telly but as you said you were there how was it how was the experience for you on site um you know having spent the last two two and almost three years um having to report remotely due to well first first of all covid but then for, uh, but then the sort of uh, financial situation after that 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 i found myself in um it, to to actually go there well for, first of all um being being an being an englishman who doesn't live in england uh it's a bizarre uh, disasso- disassociative experience to go to your own country as a foreign guest uh, and uh, to to sort of look at London as you would do a foreign city like Amsterdam or Berlin, for example. Uh, I, I enjoyed it uh, probably more than I have done any other Formula E event. But that but that's because that's because it was it, it, it felt like a Formula E event that was built built from the ground up rather than a place, a place that they were renting for the weekend. And um I think what made it work was it, it felt like Formula E um, was involved in everything to do with it and that there were no constraints set by, by the venue, by the XL Centre. And um, it, it's the first time I've been to a motorsport event and it's felt like uh, it's felt like going to a pop concert. I mean... Um, I was standing at the tubes at the DLR, sorry, station uh, before the race, uh, and uh, standing next to me was a group of young girls who were quite clearly supporting Nick DeVries because one of them had a Frisian flag over her shoulders, and um, I, I just thought, uh, you, you know, it's, it's so cool that a motorsport series has found a way to get young fans involved and they they don't they don't have to sort of uh, pretend, pretend that they've been grease monkeys since the early days and uh, and and so on i mean we we, t- we talk a lot about gatekeeping in motorsport but i actually don't think there is any gatekeeping in formula e anymore i think that people feel that they can just come and support their driver unapologetically without having to you know know anything about uh, derating batteries or powertrains or anything and um, i i think that that's uh, incredibly cool actually but uh also um yeah you mentioned the gig before the race uh i i did record a bit uh where i said isn't it a bit cringy but actually 
Looking back, it's probably what it's probably what Formula E needs to do in order to appeal to more people. And you, you know, I, I'm I'm way too old to actually tell if that works or not. It it um generally the people in the media centre were having a bit of a groan and a moan as I as was I when uh, when you had break dancers on the grid beforehand. And um you, you know it it's uh. Uh, a lot of people, well, t- twenty-two people competing in, um, in 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 a sport that has its dangers. But um, I I think I think you've I think you've got to you've got to sort of welcome these these elements in at the end of the day. And uh, I think um, and I think I think it set the London Epre apart from all the others. And um, if if they could couple that excitement with not scheduling it at exactly the same time as Formula One, then I think they'd be onto a winner here. I agree. Yeah, I thought of other good events in Formula E, and ah, being German, of course, I'll have to defend the Berlin Prix. It's a good show there, but if we're honest, we've we've had enough of Berlin <laughs> after <laughs> after that season six season finale. We've had enough of Berlin the circuit, of course. I mean, the show around it is really well thought through, and I think it's worth attending the Berlin Prix for the fan experience. Mm-hmm. And then Mexico City, obviously, the stadium packed minutes before the race gets underway, and then there's a South American pop band. Uh, there was a, a band, at least this year, anyway, uh, that played a couple of songs there, and maybe that was the inspiration for the London thing. But I'd have to agree with Antonio Felix de Costa there. I think this might well have been the best show around a Formula E event we've seen so far. Hmm. I, I would I would have to agree with you totally. Um uh, I uh, it it was it was a great show and uh, you know Sometimes uh, watching um, over the computer, um, I don't think I get a full perspective on uh, on on the fan experience, and um, it it made Formula E seem so much more real and so much more of something to care about. Um, actually, being able to share it with the fans, and e- even though I didn't go out and talk to any of the fans, because you know I, I I didn't want to seem like some kind of creeper, it wasn't like I knew them or something. Um, I, I, I still enjoyed listening to people going in and out of the XL saying things like, um, oh, I bet I um saying things to their friends like, oh, I bet you're a Dennis fan after that. Or, you know, um, um, to- talking about talking about how much they enjoyed De Vries uh, and his performance and that kind of thing. And um, it, it, it was it was a lot of fun to just be in amongst the fans. I, I think having. Um, having travelled through TV a lot recently, I've missed out on real life experiences more generally. Maybe this is kind of the post COVID climate, but um, <laughs> it's it's nice. It was nice to get back to it and nice to remind myself of why I like sports in the first place. I yeah, you're, you're right. Funnily enough, I, first thought that's a, that's precisely how Formula E is supposed to be, right? Fans leaving the event afterwards, saying. We've had a really good time. We are fans of drivers we didn't know before we went to the event this morning. Uh, making Initially, that was the purpose of Formula E, turning non-motorsport fans into Formula E fans, appealing to the ordinary Londoner on, on the street and bringing them to the event and then, I don't know, making them Formula E fans. Funnily enough, and that's the second thought, 
we might get the next best Formula E race ever in just one and a half weeks' time in Seoul. Hmm. Because obviously there are a lot of concerts planned around it anyway. The Seoul Festa uh, with a couple of concerts. I know Psy, the artist that's going to be there, the one behind Gangnam, Gangnam Style. Style. Yes. He's going to do a show, N-Hypen, NCT Dream, Stray hmm. Kids. Uh, so huge K-pop bands will be performing there. I guess looking at the track map for Seoul, that the that they will be performing right in the middle of the stadium with a circuit going around the stage, uh, not while the race is going, obviously, but it's all going to be in the same sort of location. Oh, I think... London is just the first course um, before we get to the main part of, of the meal that will be Formula E this year. Mm. I think Seoul might be even better than London. Um, I, I think under the previous regime of Formula E, BTS signed an ambassadorial deal. Is that is that still in place or uh, do you think that that was only if, if Seoul happened during 2020? That what was in place? Sorry. Uh, so BTS had an ambassadorial deal uh, where, where they would make content. I, I think that's still in place. Actually, I think I've seen a couple of TikTok videos f- with BTS. No new content. I think that was all filmed one or two years ago. But I think BTS are still global ambassadors of Formula E. They're not hmm. going to perform at the event, but I think. We might see one or the other Instagram post about Formula E from them. Maybe they're invited as VIP guests and they'll be walking the grid. And then all of a sudden we have millions of eyeballs tuning into Formula E in South Korea. As far as I know, BTS are still ambassadors for FE. Hmm. Um, well, um, that's that's good news if so, because I love BTS and I think they're great. And uh, I, I actually, I'm I'm looking forward to the Soul EP for so many reasons. Um, uh, one one is that uh, I'm perhaps a bit too much of a fan of um, of K dramas on Netflix. So um, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing if I can spot some of the uh, locations um, on, um, that I've that I've already seen on screen. Um, how how about you, Toby? Uh, I mean, obviously K pop's been around for a while have you immersed yourself in k culture i've not immersed myself in k culture but i i've had one or the other contact point uh, mainly it, within my family i know my father is really big into korean culture and korean cuisine and every time i'm home he just cooks korean food for me he's german uh he has no connect no (laughs) other connection to south korea apart from a passion for for the place and all he does is listen to korean music all he does is cook korean meals so i've had a couple of contact points with korean culture in terms of movies i've seen what was it Similar to Designated Survivor in Korean. I don't quite remember the name. It was on Netflix some time ago. And I had planned on watching the Korean adaptation of... Of course, obviously, I've seen Parasite. Um, and I've planned on watching the Korean adaptation of um, Casa de Papel. What's yeah. that called in, 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 in English? I, I don't know, House but I'm, I'm, I'm going to Money Heist. To... Oh, right. Money Heist. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm... I'm I'm going to have to not bullshit you here. I haven't seen Parasite. I'm so sorry. <gasps> you haven't seen Parasite? I have not. Oh, you have to do that before we get to, to the Soli Pre. It's a must. I think it's on Amazon Prime. 
right. other streaming services are available, but I think it's on Amazon Prime. I, I'm going to ask you the question that my sister gets very annoyed when I ask. Does it ha- does it have a sad and or gruesome ending? Um, I actually the ending it is sad and gruesome at times and mm. near the end as well i'm not sure if the ending in itself is sad and gruesome but as you know korean movies and series are sad and gruesome at times yes mm. yeah of course uh okay well um i will i will <laughs> gi- I, I will give that a watch and re- report back then please but, do uh, um but yeah so soul is a beautiful city um uh when when it's sort of lit in those in those dramas i i, I know that we can say the same about london berlin uh, you know any any city looks good looks good under good lighting and good conditions but i i think seoul is a new place for the sport as well and um um south korea has been kind of starved of um, global top level motorsports um uh since the korean grand prix uh left and i i i don't think they got a very good i don't think they, they got a very good uh um um shake of the dice at all uh from formula one because yeah i'm sure that you remember this they they, they built this circuit with the aim of building a city around the circuit and then there was um re- the recession and the city didn't get built and essentially you ended up with a squash squashed pac-man in the middle of the countryside um and uh, nothing to race there so i i believe it's kind of become a bit of a white elephant now um uh and and, and unless they still have national racing there but uh so i i think a street circuit was always the only way that we were going to tempt Korea back into um, uh, global uh, formula racing. But, uh, I, and I think Formula E was the sport to do it with, wasn't it? I think so too. I think, of course, I've just said I don't know much about Korea apart from pop culture. But in pop culture, it seems like the Koreans are really... This is a stereotype, but Koreans seem to really be into their technology. And Mm. no other racing series brings as much new technology and exciting technology um, to the circuit as Formula E is able to. So I think Formula E is a perfect fit for, for South Korea and for Seoul. Definitely. And I I always enjoy going to a circuit or um, um, being introduced to a circuit that I've uh, that I've never seen before. Um, One of the things about Formula E is because they're on semi-permanent circuits or sometimes temporary circuits, uh, depending on the semantics that you like to use, uh, um, they, they are altered from year to year. So technically, every circuit is always a new circuit because there are always you know, um, learning points made from the previous year's race. We saw that in London, and th- that's a pretty good segue back to a brief look back at the race. The race is because um, Lucas Degrassi complained about the lack of over- overtaking opportunities before the race, but it, it actually led to some surprisingly good performances or some surprisingly prominent performances from people that we'd not seen much of this season. Um in the first race, that would be Dragon Penske's Sergio Sete Camara. Um, in uh, sadly, that ended uh, in misery for him. In the second race, that would be Dragon Penske's Antonio Giovinazzi. Sadly, that ended in misery for him. But <laughs> I mean, as I tried to say to Sergio, as I was trying to big him up in the media pen, 
that was that was a brilliant performance you know um i i'm a big believer in um when when you are not doing so well you've got to look at the performance not the results i didn't say that to him obviously but i i focused on the performance i said what was it that uh, enabled you to qualify so high up the grid and to also race at the front for so long but uh his his mind was of course on the retirement on the uh, fact that uh, his Dragon Penske powertrain uh, ran out of usable energy when, when, when he and the team both believed that it had enough to, with which to complete the race. Um, it's a problem that he reckons they've wrestled with all season, which is uh, the powertrain being inefficient, so using up too much energy, uh, too much torque to to make the car regen, and uh, it's it's just it's just an outdated design compared to the others on the grid, compared to even the Neo three 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 powertrain, which is uh, still fairly new. Um, do, do you share in Sergio's frustration based on what happened in that first race? I always share Sergio's frustration <laughs> because I highly rate him. Um, he did have an amazing qualifying, as did his teammate on, on Sunday. So the one lap pace was there. And I had a look at the timing sheets after the weekend. Sergio Seto Camara never finished a timed session outside the top nine, which is mind-blowing to me we've never seen dragon perform as well as they did in london at least in, in timed sessions and on on one lap and then maybe that was the i'll call it the london effect uh, that helped him in the race that efficiency wasn't as crucial as it is elsewhere and then <laughs> apparently it was crucial because in the end he ran out of energy without him knowing. Um, and I listened to him on, on team radio at the time and he said, well, I look like a clown now, don't I? <laughs> and he did look like a clown if you didn't know the circumstances mm -hmm. of the team feeding him wrong information based on possibly wrong readings uh, from the car. So I do share his frustration. Thankfully, on Sunday he turned that misery into the greatest success of the year for him. He finally finished in the points. Finally, it's only top, only P9 for him. But it's two very important points for him. As I say, I highly rate the guy, and I think it's overdue that he's signed to a top team in Formula E. I know it's not too realistic for 2023, but I simply hope he's on the grid next year. The silly season is really silly this year of course mm -hmm. but it would be one of the greatest injustices in recent formula e history if sergio setacamara wasn't racing next year well um i i, I said to him because obviously uh, we we have both read the reports that uh, uh he's being looked at by uh, by by the new teams for next season um I, I I said to him, you know, uh, if if you if you get the opportunity to race in Formula E next season, would you take it? And he said yes, and I think I will. So, it, it's it sounds it sounds like he's fairly confident that his agents found him something already, which would be good. Hopefully, that begs the question of where though. I only see possibilities for him as we speak right now at McLaren hmm. um, and Neo, depending on. The Neo re-signs their two drivers, and depending on who else McLaren care to sign this year, uh, yeah. they seem to have every uh, driver in the world contracted to them. 
yeah um uh, i was going to say uh, Z- zach brown has now uh, has 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 now has now signed um uh if if it effectively a busload of drivers um the, the the way the way that the formula one situation appears to be heading uh he will presumably and i mean this entirely as a joke have to farm off lando norris to formula e um, <laughs> but uh it, it's it's so that's that's a difficult one to see but you never know um i i know that sam smith on the race was uh bigging up the prospects of will stevens uh will will um, will the lad stevens as we are contractually obliged to call him um um, I would love to see it. Uh, Sam would definitely love to see it as well. Um, and uh, um, he, he even suggested that uh, Will Stevens might have a Jake Dennis type quality of being uh, being a somewhat overlooked talent who has developed a lot. And um, who, uh, well, uh, Antonio Felix da Costa, Sam said, um, have, um, rates him as uh, the the best sports car driver he's ever shared a car with. And you know, Antonio is a former works BMW driver, so he. So so he's seen a lot of drivers in his time. Um, so Will Will Stevens is another one that I think should be acknowledged. He's he's a McLaren uh, test driver and sim driver as well. But yeah, uh, they've got Felix Rosenquist and Sete Camara, possibly Will Stevens, uh, possibly Lando Norris if you believe in jokes as well. Um, so um, it's it's altogether too many choices there. Uh, there. There is still a seat going at Abt as well, isn't there? Ah. Uh... Yeah, officially there is. Inofficially, I think they they have a done deal with Robin Freins and Nico Muller for next year. Nico Muller? Oh, well, that would make sense with the Audi link, wouldn't it? Yeah, and especially because Nico Muller, he is an Audi driver, but in DTM he's racing for apt Audi. Mm-hmm. And he has prior experience in FE. That's pretty much the most important aspect for apt's management. I spoke to Thomas Biermeyer, a couple of weeks ago and he said well we we are pretty much only looking at drivers who have prior experience in formula e and that is robin freins on one hand also signed or, or raced for apt in dtm a couple of years ago i think he does no he doesn't he still no he doesn't anymore but nico muller does and i am relatively certain famous last words but muller and freins will be racing with app next year hmm. um Again, I I find it difficult to get rid of the impression that uh, Apt uh, is in Formula E as a kind of stalking horse for an Audi re-entry, if they so wish, just because they've signed a deal with Mahindra, which I think runs for uh, the entirety of Gen 3. But they are allowed to break it uh, if if another manufacturer comes in and they and they wish to take on that manufacturer and presumably they'll have to pay off Mahindra for the remainder of the contract. But that there there is a break clause on on that customer deal there. So uh, obviously VW have been flip flopping a bit. They they said that they'd go fully electric and uh, now Porsche look like they're going to Formula One with Red Bull and uh, there's the Le Mans hypercar program as well uh, for Porsche. Uh, do, do you see an Audi Formula E re-entry as something that may happen during Gen 3? Mm-mm. I'll have to say no to that. I think maybe Gen 4. <sighs> I think one of the key arguments for for Audi leaving was that they weren't allowed to develop their own batteries. And I think if we get battery development in Gen 4, Audi might return. 
but I don't see Audi reconsidering their decision to stay out of Formula E for now because, of course, they're also looking at options in endurance racing and F1 as well. I wouldn't say that it's impossible that Audi return, but I don't think it'll happen anytime the next four years. Hmm. Um, it's interesting thinking about thinking ahead to Gen Four because I I think that Formula E will survive, but um, a, a lot of, a lot of times recently uh, the way that decision making has gone, it has felt a little bit existential sometimes. Um, I'm thinking about how they had ample opportunity to not stage the London E Prix at the same time as F1 qualifying in the race. Uh, I'm thinking about. Uh, the uh, situation in New York, where okay, uh, you you can't you can't you can't do a deal with God unless you're Kate Bush, but uh, you you can you can you can certainly um, uh, you can you can certainly not have a situation where um, drivers feel the penalties are arbitrarily made by video rather than by data, and uh, um, where where people are people are negotiating penalties for hours after the race this is something that formula e's had through throughout the gen 2 the gen 2 era but uh it feels like something that fans and well media as well are less and less willing to accept as a growing pain doesn't it it's frustrating as hell yeah because it's frustrating for me as someone working in formula e to have to write an article about think back to london this weekend about nick de Vries losing his podium his P3 after the race, hours after the race. Mm -hmm. But I can only imagine how much more frustrating it is as a fan of Nick DeFries. Think to the girls at the DLR station. Mm -hmm. um, the disappointment of them to leave the event, go home, think DeFries is third, and then read a piece online three, four, five hours after the event. It wasn't as much this time, but it happened in the past. Hours after the event of drivers being disqualified or penalized and then demoted from the podium. I'm thinking of, for example, Daniel Apt losing his Hong Kong victory in season five. That happened four or five hours after the checkered flag. And I get that stewards need time to take the decisions. Formula E races aren't as long as Formula One races are. Hmm. So while stewards during a Formula One, stewards in F1 generally have more time to decide in the races about penalties. FE stewards generally have to decide after the checkered flag. But then it takes just too long to communicate the decisions they've made or to make the, decis the decisions. Um... I think there was a case in New York about that as well. Uh, yeah, the the uh, pole position penalty for Nick Cassidy, that was a prime example of that. When Envision had to change the battery before FP3, hmm. and then Envision told the FAA, hey guys, we've changed our battery right as FP3 started. And then the stewards only decided... Before the final qualifying duel went, got underway, um, that Cassidy had to serve a grid drop, which is obvious because it's it's a black and white decision. Mm. You have to drop 30 spots on the grid if you change your battery. And then it's, it gets communicated after the qualifying duel, and Nick Cassidy has to learn about this in a TV interview. 
there was just so much going wrong there. And I think it could have been solved a lot cleaner and a lot quicker. And it's frustrating for fans. Um, I totally, think, totally yeah. agree. And I didn't do a podcast about New York because uh, the guest that I was hoping to get on wasn't available in the small amount of time that I had. But <laughs> um, the, the situation with Cassidy um, seems to get grayer and grayer the more the more we found out about it so a 30 place grid penalty is i believe mandatory if you take more than four um radiators in a season and uh um uh, cassidy's car was on its fifth radiator um of of the season that's my understanding um but in in that case uh the, the team must have known the rules so uh, either the team were negotiating uh, uh, as to whether this was this was a force majeure situation and they could somehow get out of the penalty, um, or they just knew knew they were getting a penalty and didn't tell Cassidy, or neither the team nor the driver knew they were getting a penalty and the FIA didn't communicate it to them until after the qualifying duels. Now, um, in in any case, I I think. I I I would be I would be livid if I were Cassidy because you're sending a driver out to risk his neck for um for a lap and you're asking him to drive on the limit for people's entertainment and then you're turning around and saying by the way that was completely worthless sorry mate um and I I don't know what you think happened there but uh I was cross and I found it very difficult to explain to my family I had difficulties explaining it as well. Um, it seems like some someone didn't do their job properly. Either it was the FIA that took too long to decide. I think that's part of the truth. But let's face it, Nick Cassidy should have been aware of it or someone in the team should have made him aware of the penalty that's going to be put on on his qualifying performance afterwards so usually that's the job of the team manager i'm not really sure at the moment who is envision's team manager whether that's a job for the team principal or if they have someone else the team principal would be obviously silvan Filippi, but mm-hmm. maybe envision have someone else to manage the team someone didn't do their job in that situation obviously Otherwise, we wouldn't have had that confusion after the qualifying session. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, of, of course, London was not not without controversy as well. Uh, straight straight after the race, there was uh, uh, almost a punch up apparently between Pascal Verline and Sebastian Buemi, um, which um, very much has the energy of Montreal season three and the uh, famous dirty man, dirty man recorded dispute with, Dan- <laughs> with Daniel Abt, um, um, who, by the way, didn't hit him, but still um, dirty man nonetheless. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, apparently, according to Pascal Verlein's recollection, um, uh, um, um, he, he's, he said to Sebastian Buemi, and I'm aware there might be a bit of artistic license on this, um, maybe maybe don't try that moving under braking because uh, I might not be able to slow down in time and I might crash next time. 
And apparently Sebastian Wemmy's response was, uh, tell that to my face, <laughs> and then moving up close to him. And then Pascal <laughs> Verlein said, said the same thing again. Uh, if you do that moving under baking, then I might not be able to, uh, and so on. And uh, supposedly that was enough to almost get him a thumping. Um, I have a feeling Pascal is possibly uh, um, um, allowing a bit of poetic license on what he said, do you think? I think he might, yep. <laughs> he does have a fair point, though. I mean, if you look at the situation, which I think is the one that they were arguing about, Sebastian Buemi was moving a lot under braking. That was, I think, the same situation where Edo Mortara lost briefly control of his car and just mm. steamed down the inside of... Was it Mitch Evans? I don't really remember. I think it was. And what invigorates me as much as it does invigorate Pascal is the fact that on Saturday, that, that situation happened on Sunday, and on Saturday Robin Fryens was penalised for a moving under braking infringement. And the stewards, bear in mind they are the same stewards on, on Saturday and Sunday, had two pretty similar situations and decided for a completely different outcome. They didn't even did they even investigate Buemi for moving under braking? I don't think so. Um, well, uh, according to Buemi, uh, uh, he, both he and Verline were under investigation, so that so so that meant Pascal was just as bad. Uh, he said in his comments. Um, so uh, it it, uh, it 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 sounds like a little bit of entertainment, a uh, little bit little bit of milk for the fans uh, after the race, but nothing to get too het up about, nonetheless. Uh, we we are seeing we are seeing moving under braking generally being condoned in motorsport at the moment uh and and, and i i think uh, no, no matter what Fernando Alonso says, uh, since 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 Michael Schumacher um, uh, was on track, I think uh, we've 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 seen drivers doing anything they can to defend on the straights, haven't we? Yeah, I I want to add that Robert Franz was penalised on Saturday, but mm -hmm. not for moving and braking. He was penalised for swerving on on the straight and moving direction more than once, which a couple of years ago used to be simply a gentleman's agreement in F1. No one had a rule about changing directions on a straight, and then at some point it was implemented, and now Robin Franz was penalised for, for swerving. <sighs> and then I think back to Marrakesh in 2020, when, remember, Max Gunter overtook Jean-Eric Verne on the last lap, a spectacular mm -hmm. move. That also happened after Jeff changed direction three times. So there's no consistency in the stewards' rulings there. I know there's a bit of time between seasons six and now season eight, but I think it's it's a pretty clear decision you, you have to make. If a driver changes direction more than once, you have to penalise him. With that logic, of course, we wouldn't have had the season finale in F1 last year because after Verstappen got past Hamilton, I yes, just yesterday I rewatched the race uh, over over some lunch, uh, <laughs> or not the entire race, but the last couple of of minutes, and I thought to myself, oh my god, is just that what Max Verstappen is doing on the last lap, changing direction, trying to break the toe of Lewis Hamilton? That's hmm. Precisely what Robin Fryens was penalised for uh, in London. Hmm. 
anyway, the racing standards are or have been a point of discussion in Formula E for a long, long time now. Probably since the early days of Formula E. Uh, I, I think probably since, and that's an accident, at the end of the first Chinese E-Pre. <laughs> yeah, it was a case in Gen 1, but especially with the introduction of the very robust Gen 2 cars that became a topic, because it's okay to have contact in Formula E nowadays. You can race like you race a GT car with these machines. Mm. Not quite like a GT car, but contact is okay, and contact often is necessary as well to overtake. And hopefully the Gen 3 cars are a bit more fragile. Then, of course, we'll see more retirements, that's a, a negative side effect, but it might also improve the racing, and we might not see dodgy maneuvers like we see we've seen in throughout the entirety of Gen Two. Right, I, I was I was watching an old YouTube. Uh, um, well, it, it it was a YouTube upload of the World Sports Car Championship race from Canada uh, in 1990 or 91 uh, as as you do as you do if you're a sad bastard like me um and um i i think there was i think there was a bit with martin brundle uh, actually being interviewed on a grid walk it's it's that old um and uh he he said something about uh he enjoys sports car racing because you can bang wheels and have more fun than you can in formula 1 um i i imagine that a lot of formula e drivers at least judging by the drivers room clip after the race seem to get a lot of entertainment value from that as well is entertaining yes and i don't ask for formula e to be to produce as cars as fragile as they are in f1 i think f1 cars are i mean if, if you touch them they break apart uh, because parts are so fine and fragile and everything's aerodynamically tuned to perfection and that has its right to exist i think formula e doesn't need these aerodynamic flaps and whatnot that break apart every time you touch them. But I think the cars are a bit too robust in, or have been a bit too robust in Gen 2. And I hope we get to see a few more broken front wings in Gen 3 so that drivers will stop just driving into each other to overtake. Well, uh, I, I, I hope that the logic is correct. I, I just think it's a bit like raising the price of beer to stop people from drinking. People people will always find a way of doing what they what they want to do, won't they? So, um, do you, do you not think we'll just end up with more attritional races where fewer drivers finish? Maybe for the first half of the season, yes. I think if we have drivers like oh, I'm name calling them now, Andre Lotra on the grid next year, or Every second accident involves Oliver Rowland or Alexander Sims. Mm -hmm. These three generally. Nick de Vries, the, uh, who has a nickname of being the Chihuahua on the mm -hmm. grid in, in Formula E, because he he's an aggressive defender and attacker as well. De Vries is just incredibly aggressive, and that that's what makes him so quick. I mean, he won the Drivers' Championship last year because he was so good and aggressive. Um, so that's not no no criticism of him, but generally these four are the most aggressive drivers on the grid, at least in terms of wheel to wheel combat, and it really is combat for them. And yeah. I 
think if if we give them more fragile cars, they will retire more frequently, or would retire more frequently. But after some time, uh, time I think drivers would learn that they don't finish races with a broken car. That's mm. my hope, at least. Well, um, yes, I'm... Do you think we'll, we'll have just 12 retirements in a race if we move to fragile Gen 3 cars now? I think in the early races, uh, as we saw in the early races of Gen 2, there will be a lot of attrition. Um, but I think that the drivers will have a lot more to think about. So there will be that as well. Um, I, I know that they're talking about going back to uh, a standard number of laps rather than rather than uh, uh, timed races, which... Um, so the, the the aim would be to uh, to bring in tactics in a different way uh, and... Uh, uh, I th I think they're they're moving towards as well some form of well potentially charging pit stop. Uh, I I got the chance to look at the Gen Three when it was on display in London, and uh, it's the first Formula E car to have a visible charger uh, poking out of the back of it. So that that suggests to me that they they're looking to make charging and you know more of that road relevant element part part of the actual race action, which would again bring in another tactical element. So I, I think drivers will have more to think about i think uh, gen 3 will benefit the clever driver more um which could be good news for for example lucas degrassi who is staying in formula e uh could be good news for sebastian Buemi as well who's uh, moving on to envision um and I think actually Buemi's move to Envision is good news for Buemi. I remains to be seen whether it's good news for Envision because the Sebastian Buemi of now is not the season two dominating champion Sebastian Buemi, and I've been waiting for him to um, uh, st stage that comeback because I, I think that um, I think that still still the heart of a uh, um, of, of a uh, um, tier one racing driver beats inside him, but. I don't think that was going to happen at Nissan um, and I think that he needed the move in the same way that maybe uh, at least for the first half of the F1 season Valtteri Bottas seemed like a much better driver at Alpha than he did um, latterly at, at Mercedes. Uh, also uh, as as we're going to talk about uh, Nissan seemed to have found a particularly good driver to replace him. I'm very pleased to see Sasha Fenestras get back to uh, Eurocentric racing action, having uh, having been in Super Formula and re really really away from widespread TV coverage in Europe for the last couple of years. Um, your thoughts on Buemi moving to Envision? Your thoughts on uh, your thoughts on Fenestras? Um, Fenestras, first of all, I think. It's a good signing because he's been doing really well, at least in terms of results in Japan. He's been a really successful driver for Super GT teams. In Super Formula, he's been doing really well. But as is usual with drivers racing in Japan, at least for me, sadly, I, I loathe myself for it. I simply lose track of them. And sometimes I see, okay, Liam Lawson, he did well. Dan Tictum did a race, uh, did a racing season in Japan he didn't as well. Do well. Oh, okay. Oh, anyway, I completely forgot about Dan Tictum existing in the time he was in Japan, and a similar thing applies to uh, to Sasha Fenestras, as it did for Nick Cassidy. Um, it's it's good that they are 
it's my Eurocentristic view, obviously. It doesn't mean that racing in Japan do doesn't count for nothing. Um, I, I, it's super formula. It's highly competitive. But I, but simply because of the time delay, don't really follow Japanese racing. And it's good for myself, thinking egoistically, that I get to enjoy Sasha Fenestra's racing in Europe again. I, as I say, I have no idea how he will compare to other drivers in Formula E. Especially, I have especially no idea about his possible results because we don't know how good or not good Nissan are going to be next year um, mm. with the new Gen 3 powertrain. Of course, with the current powertrain, I don't think anyone could bring that car near the top three. Uh, but maybe Nissan's Gen 3 powertrain is from another planet and they are all of a sudden a top team again then Sasha Fenestras will look like the superhero um, yeah we'll have to wait and see generally though I I, I like it of him being in, in Europe again and I think his fans in Argentina of course he's half, half Argentinian are enjoying this as well maybe it will give Formula E in South America much needed boost as well so he's a good signing. Uh, it's not officially confirmed, of course, as well as Buemi and Envision isn't officially confirmed, but both of them would be good signings if they are officially official at some point. Buemi at Envision, I think he will do well. I have trust that the Jaguar Patria next year is going to do well. Um and alongside who else? Yeah, Nick Cassidy most likely at Envision. I think he'll do well. I think it's a nice. It's nice to finally compare Nick Cassidy to a seasoned Formula E driver. Uh, of course, Robin Fiennes is a seasoned FE driver as well. Huh. Anyway, uh, <laughs> at least a Formula E champion. I think Cassidy Buemi is a potent driver pairing for Envision. Hmm. And uh, we we can't even we can't even make predictions on how the powertrains will perform next season. Uh, I I thought Abt signing up Mahindra was a marriage of convenience because the Mahindra powertrain has been so slow and difficult to set up this season. But uh, if at at least at least compared to how it looked last season, um, may, maybe maybe that's because uh, um, everyone's favourite Alex Lynn is not there anymore. But uh, I think I think there's more to it personally. But um, just had to get that uh, Alex Lynn reference in, <laughs> reference in for Sasky, who I know listens. But um, more seriously, uh, I, I think that the Gen 3 powertrains are obviously going to be a completely new build. And a lot of teams have not given up on this season necessarily, but have given up on, uh, you know, going for wins, going for points if they're out of the, out of the title fight for the Drivers' or Teams' Championship just because they've got a chance to hit the ground running with Gen 3. So that there is no reason not to suppose that uh, Mahindra might have a much improved performance next season, particularly as they appear to have taken on Apt as a kind of technical partner. Now, this was very interesting when I read this, but essentially, Dealbag Gill is talking about Apt... Uh, um, forming forming one development team with Mahindra so that they can all develop the powertrain together at all tests, which mm. is stretching the manufacturer-supplier relationship, but there doesn't seem to be anything uh, against the rules in it because 
uh, a manufacturer has to give the customer the rights to the same amount of testing and uh, the and, and um, e e you know equal treatment in terms of in terms of powertrains. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, it, it is a brand new look at how a manufacturer could treat a, could treat a customer, isn't it? It's really interesting, yeah. I think the rule is that customer teams need to get at least four days of testing. Um, every manufacturer has a set amount of days allocated to them. And if you supply a customer team, then you get an extra couple of days of testing and at least four days, if, if I'm not completely mistaken, the amount of days that the customer team alone gets usually. But then, of course, as you rightly say, customer, uh, sorry, manufacturers can, yeah, use some of the newly allocated days together with their customers as well. It's an interesting concept. It's a concept that, of course, Mahindra uses to hopefully inc increase performance of their powertrain package. In terms of competition, it's even more interesting, though, because by giving apt, who are, of course, customers, but when you meet on track rivals, by giving apt a couple of extra test days, you increase the performance of your rivals. So it's interesting that Mahindra would do that, but we'll have to wait and see. Maybe that's yeah the secret way no other manufacturer has has used so far. Maybe it will pay off. I think they're maybe looking at it in the sense that they don't have a winning team this season or always a point scoring team, and uh, if if they want to improve that, then it's it's a good idea to use the expertise of. A customer that has uh, an established winning reputation in in multiple forms of motorsport, including Formula E. So, uh, if 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 it leads to effectively four uh, four works Mahindra cars, but in different colours, well, that's maybe uh, essentially the relationship that Mercedes and Venturi have had for the last few years. Mm -hmm. Although, to be fair, I think it, it ended up as being four works Mercedes, but I think it's still a in quote unquote classic relationship between a customer and a manufacturer. I think Venturi didn't get too many test days um before the current package, the Silver Arrow O2, um was homologated. By now the cooperation has gotten as close as it has, and effectively we have four cars performing as well as they as if they were works Mercedes cars. But I think Venturi and Mercedes are further apart than Apt, right now than Apt and Mahindra will be next year. Hmm. Well, um, th that's, that's as may be, but uh, th th there are still a lot of free seats, uh, or at least um, unannounced seats within Formula E, and there's still a lot up in the air in terms of next season. And... We still have one more doubleheader event to go. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward, as you are immensely, to the Sol E Prix, and uh, I'm 
hoping to get together some of the some of the friends I've made along the way uh, to um, <laughs> to do to do a kind of a roundtable postseason roundup and uh, look look at a few of the developments from this final season of Gen Two. But uh, Toby Bloom uh, of eformel.de, uh, you can follow him at uh, Toby Tweetings on um, uh, Twitter. And um, also, you can read him on eformel.de. Um, you can follow Motion E on motione.org. And if you liked this, then please do smash that rate button on your podcasting app. If you didn't like this, then, well, maybe consider not doing that. But um, it, it's been great, uh, uh, great of you to join us, Toby. And uh, that's been the Motion E podcast. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, goodbye for now. Bye.